Um, well, good morning. We're going to begin a new series today on the Ten Commandments. And uh, I have to give you a little bit of a warning. After I, I wrote the lesson, I kind of got through it, and I was like, I think this one's going to be headier than the other ones. This is not going to cover any of the specific commandments. Instead, it's going to be sort of an introduction where we sort of lay the groundwork. Um, so in part, I'm giving a little bit of a heads up at the beginning, and I'm also giving you permission to just stop me and say, hey, you said something and you didn't explain it, and I want you to explain more, and I'm happy to. So you can always interrupt and ask questions. Uh, my goal here this morning is for us to sort of lay uh, the groundwork for this question. What is God's law, and why should we keep it? Because this Ten Commandments series it comes with one huge loaded presumption, and the huge loaded presumption is we should keep the Ten Commandments. That's sort of built into all of these, these lessons here. And so if you don't buy into the belief that we ought to keep the Ten Commandments, then all of these lessons are just going to be studies in Jewish history, right? This is what the Jews used to do. And the claim that we have in this class is, well, actually, no, we actually are still to keep these commandments. These are still rules for God's people even today. And so uh, I, I think I, it might instinctively be true that we should keep God's law, but, but actually that's not something that we can assume because in the public square uh, and even in many churches, I, it might come as a surprise, but there are lots of churches that actually teach their people the Ten Commandments are not to be kept. We don't have to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. Uh, they're part of the Old, old Covenant. Uh, They can be discarded. I know it sounds crazy. Maybe uh, in this church, I am sure that you have heard the Ten Commandments before. I know that Robert has lessons on the Ten Commandments ready to go. So I know that that's been taught here in this church before. Um, But yet it really is true that there are that you can't take it for granted. You cannot just assume that people know that the Ten Commandments are still for us today. And so I think it's worth doing one lesson on this question before we actually jump head on into the contents of the Ten Commandments. And so what I want to do is talk about the nature of law, the things that God requires of us. I wonder if this other one's a little darker. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, I want to talk about the nature of law. Um... Any discussion of law actually doesn't start with law as like if it's this abstract thing, but it actually starts with the source of, of any laws in the universe, which is what or who? Yeah, God is the source of any sort of law in the universe. Well, yeah. Any laws that happen in the universe happen because of God, whether they're physical laws, whether they're moral laws. Or whether there are logical laws. All of those things have their source and their beginning in God itself. And so because God is who he says he is, his law is what it says. Um, So let's actually talk about law. The the Ten Commandments are a series of commands. They relate to morality. Uh, They are commands that expect human beings to reflect God's own goodness, God's own character in the created world, in the place where we live. And because we were created by a moral God, we live in a moral universe. It's not the other way around. We do not live in a moral universe, therefore God is a moral being, but it actually starts with God. Um, God's universe is governed by God's laws. Physical laws are put in place by God. Logical laws uh, by which truth is maintained come from God. 
um, and moral laws that tell us how we should live and how we should love and who we should love. So morality is baked into the universe, and because we're made in God's image, it's baked into us too. Um, I think our church confession has something to say at the very beginning. In fact, I want to read from the very first line of our church confession, because to begin with, I actually want to start with something that's not very popular today, and certainly not popular in theological circles, and that's why I want to bring it up, is this notion of natural law. Um, I'm going to move on from this. We're not just going to talk about natural law, but listen to what our confession says at the very beginning in section 1-1 of the Westminster Confession. By the way, uh, a few books that I'm at least looking at for this class. Uh, Thomas Watson has a book on the Ten Commandments that's really quite good. Uh, Also, the book that all of us are using, me and Robert and Grant, we're all using this book by Jay Dauma called The Ten Commandments. Um, I'm using it some. And then uh, I keep mentioning Wilhelmus Abrockel. Uh, I have this book. Grant has it. Robert doesn't. So we're just going to parade it in, in its face as much as we can. And uh, he's got some chapters, a chapter on each of the commandments in here. And so as I've worked on this, I've sort of looked at what he's got to say as well. Uh, this is what our confession says, though, about uh, natural law. It says this. Although the light of nature... Listen to that phrase, light of nature. Although the light of nature and works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his, wisdom, of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. So the, the Puritans and the Reformed used to talk about the way God's revealed himself to us in two ways. They used to say, God has given us two books. He's given us the book of nature, and he's given us the book of scripture. So, And uh, what what it says about the book of nature, the light of nature is what the phrase that gets used here, is it tells us some things about God. It tells us that he's the creator... Uh, If you look at creation around us, we can see that he's good and that he's wise. Uh, The confession says that we know that he's powerful. These are all things that, according to our own church confession, we know just by looking at the world around us. And we see that in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Um. We also see that, we will talk actually about Romans chapter 2 in just a moment, uh, but one of the things that we see is that we're able to be left inexcusable because we're born in this world, a world of laws. We're born in a world where we're surrounded by the book of nature. You could call it natural law. People, for some reason, are uncomfortable with that phrase. Um, but whatever you want to call it, we all know certain things about God, but the confession also says it's not enough to save us. It's not enough to tell us about salvation. It's not enough to tell us about how we can actually be rescued. It's not enough to tell us about faith in Jesus. And that's where the book of Scripture comes in. We need the book of Scripture if we want to be saved. But not only if we want to be saved. 
the book of Scripture is also good for showing us these things as well. I mean, who's going to read the Bible and come away believing that God's not powerful or that God's not wise or that he didn't create things? I mean, we're all going to see that when we read Scripture. Um, so rather than jumping right to Scripture, though, I want to begin by talking about the book of nature and talking about natural law. And the reason it, that I want to do this is I don't know anywhere else that I'll get to. Um, natural law has fallen on hard times, especially in Reformed theological circles. I think a lot of times people think, well, natural law, they sort of associate it with Roman Catholicism, and that's true. Roman Catholics have been on much more on the front end of thinking about natural law than Protestants have. Um, but if you look in church history, if you look at the theologians in the Reformation, one of the things you see is they talk about natural law a lot. They actually, um, in the very first chapter of this, he spends quite a bit of time talking about natural law. But if you read newer systematic theologies, or if you read modern commentaries on the Westminster Confession, sometimes they actually skip over that phrase, light of nature. And they don't even want to talk about this idea that we can know anything about God outside of the Bible. And so uh, I think it's important for us to sort of address that. Now, I'm not going to really talk about natural theology. I don't really want to talk about how much we can know about God outside of the Bible. What I'm more interested in this morning, because it deals with the Ten Commandments, is morality. Our unbelieving, secular neighbors have a moral system baked into their souls because they're made in the image of God. They actually do know right from wrong. And so we need to deal with that before we move to the Ten Commandments. Um, because they're connected. They're connected to each other. Uh, I am convinced that one reason why Christians today have somewhat retreated from public engagement when it comes to issues like politics is because we've neglected natural law. And natural law is one of the tools that helps us to engage with people who don't hear a Bible verse and immediately uh, suddenly have their mind changed about the law. Right? There are some people that if you want to talk about abortion with them, you have to deal with them on a, on a basis that they're going to accept. So it's true if you go to um, an abortionist and if you read to them, you shall not murder, that is true. And that is binding. And they will not care. Right? Because there's an approach that we need to take with people that doesn't just include quoting scripture. Protestants are very good at it. Roman Catholics are better at it. If you look at the uh, Supreme Court, all the Christians on the Supreme Court are Roman Catholics. Uh, there are no Protestants on the Supreme Court. I think part of the reason for that is not just politics. It's that Roman Catholics have thought more about uh, jurisprudence. They've thought more about natural law. They've thought more about the law in general than we as Protestants have. And so we've lost an appreciation for the requirements that God puts on people who aren't Christians and who aren't believers. So we're, more, we're better at just talking to each other. We're better at quoting scripture with each other. But then when it comes to dealing with other folks on the outside, we're weaker in that area. And so I mentioned natural law to start with because the Ten Commandments are a summary of this. If you want to have natural law summarized in a written way that doesn't change, look no further than the Ten Commandments. So I just talked about natural law and how important it is, but I didn't tell you what it is. 
Natural law is the obligations and requirements and consequences which are required of human beings because we are image bearers of God and participants in the moral order. So natural law is God's law. It's not some abstract law that doesn't have anything to do with God that's sort of floating out there, but it's God's law and it's common to all people, not just to, not just to God's people. That's why uh, when people break the Ten Commandments in their lives, they face the consequences, even if they've never heard a Bible verse in their entire life before. And that goes all the way back to the creation of the universe, but especially the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden, because remember, what were Adam and Eve made like? Whose image were they made in? They were made in God's image. So Adam and Eve have the image of God baked into them, not just like pressed into them, but baked into them. It's not coming out. It is a part of who they are now. And I need a couple volunteers Uh, I need somebody who's willing to open their Bible to Romans chapter 1 and someone who's willing to open their Bible to Romans chapter 2. Do I have a volunteer for Romans 1? Martha? And who will read from Romans chapter 2? Don't worry, it's not a whole chapter. All right, Robert? One of the clearest places that we see the Bible really affirming this idea that, yeah, guess what? Your unbelieving neighbors, maybe they've never heard a Bible verse in their life. They do know right from wrong. One of the places you see that get affirmed is Paul here at the beginning of Romans. You know, at the beginning of Romans, Paul's whole purpose is to convince us that we live in a moral universe. And even those Gentiles, that's really his context here, even Gentiles who have maybe never read the Ten Commandments before are still violators of it. They're still violators of God's law, even if they've never heard it before. Um, Martha, would you read from Romans 1, 18 to 23? It's about five verses there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible, incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creepy things. So before we even get to any sort of mention of Scripture, Paul says, look, there are things that unbelievers know and they're supposed to be observing and living by, right? They know God. They know His power. They know they're supposed to glorify Him. That He faults them. He says they don't glorify God. Uh, They're supposed to worship Him. What do they worship instead, according to the last part of the verse nature birds animals creeping things Um, and so even the unrighteous people know the truth and the phrase Paul uses is he says they they suppress the truth in unrighteousness so there's a bit of a tug of war going on in their hearts on the one hand 
they know what they're supposed to do. On the other hand, they have this tremendous pull not to do what they're supposed to do. And he says there are things that can be known about God even if you've never opened your Bibles before. And maybe you've known folks like that where uh, they have no Christian background, they have no religious inclination, they've really never grown up around the church, and yet sometimes they'll, they'll talk about God. They have the best notions they can have of him. Uh, and sometimes they'll even talk about how they pray and things like that. There is a baked in, I keep using that phrase, maybe there's a better word to use, it's not so repetitive, but there is this instinct in all humanity because we're made in God's image that we aren't supposed to be the way we are, but at the same time, there's just no way out of it. They need good news, but they don't have it. And so what he says is their hearts are darkened, their foolishness reigns, and people would rather love the creation than they would love the creator. And then Paul says something else that's important as far as unbelievers, as far as secular folks. Robert, would you read from chapter 2, verses 14 and 15? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, excusing them, period. Okay, so these, these phrases that Paul uses here, they are some of the foundational that's sort of the foundation for where we get this language like the natural law because he says they do these things of the law by nature. Um, by nature, um, they don't have a Bible, and yet there's something inside of them that knows. He's, Paul is recognizing this. Um, he says they showed the work of the law written in their hearts. So all of these things, what we need to understand is that when we look at that world out there and we see it in absolute mad chaos, one of the things we need to know is that every single person who is acting out, whether they're looting, whether they're uh, murdering, whether they're stealing, whether they're defrauding investors, whether name any number of things, they know every step of the way that what they're doing is wrong. What you might hear out of their mouths is justification, right? What you might hear out of their mouths is them trying to explain themselves the best that they can or trying to sort of excuse or justify their own actions. But one thing that we can't question is whether they know deep down that it's right or whether it's wrong. Paul says they have the work of the law written in their hearts. And yet there's a problem here because all of this is enough to convict them. All of this is enough to show them that they're guilty. And that's sort of where humanity is at this point, right? If we're just talking about the law of nature, just natural law, just uh, whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it the light of nature, like the confession does. But Paul is very clear. All humanity knows what God requires of them, and they suppress that truth. Now, one section of scripture, I would actually suggest that that God actually formally Uh, introduces humanity into a covenant that requires them to keep this law is Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to suggest, uh, read a couple verses from that. Um, And I don't have time to spend a lot of time there. And if you're not persuaded by what I say here, that's okay. It still doesn't change the fact that Paul recognizes it. But in in, uh, Genesis chapter 9, if you'll remember, the flood has happened. 
Uh, Noah and his family have gotten off of the ark, and God makes a covenant with Noah. And especially in chapter 9, verse 5, the second half of verse 5, God says this. He says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then he goes further and he makes this covenant with uh, man. And he says, I'm not going to flood the earth again. I'm never going to destroy all of humanity again. But one of the things that he does here is he makes this universal principle, this universal rule, part of the covenant that he makes with Noah. He says, I'm requiring that if, if someone murders another person, their life is forfeited. In other words, you will be treated as you deserve. There's justice. There's meant to be justice. We're meant to treat people the way that they deserve. So if you uh, kill a person, you should be killed if you murder that person intentionally. And the Old Testament law does a good job of sort of giving us more detail on how you determine that and what the difference is. Um, But this principle, notice who it's made with. Notice who this covenant gets made with. It doesn't get made with Christians. It doesn't get made with, with Jews. It doesn't get made with the children of Abraham. Who does it get made with? Noah. Noah and all of his descendants. Everybody that comes from Noah, which is everybody. right? There's nobody on this planet that didn't get born from Noah. That didn't come from Noah's family. And so God made a covenant with Noah. He required people to be treated the same way that they treat others. And... Also notice this, this is not a saving covenant. This isn't the kind of of covenant he makes with Abraham, right? Because he says, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to multiply your name. And all of these promises involve salvation, but not here with Noah. This covenant with Noah is different. He basically makes a covenant that says, you're going to stay alive. (laughs) He's, He's giving a moral order to Noah and all of his descendants that keeps everybody going. But it doesn't save anybody. It doesn't rescue them uh so this isn't a covenant that gets fulfilled in in jesus this is a covenant that just says let's keep people alive long enough that they can hear the gospel that i'm gonna make this covenant with abraham later on and so uh this means so so that means even today any unbeliever that you meet out there whether they realize it or not they are in a covenant with god They're in a covenant with God, and it goes all the way back at least to this moment here with Noah. Because this is a covenant that never gets taken away, it never gets rescinded. There is still an expectation of fairness on the part of all humanity. You are to be treated the way you deserve. Um, And the Westminster Confession says, look, the book of nature can leave people feeling guilty and knowing that they're guilty, but it can't save them from their sins, it can't rescue them. Uh, You can look at the book of nature as long as you want, and you will never see a coming Savior in the book of nature. You will never see the name of Jesus by looking at the book of nature. What you will see is that you're guilty. Um, We actually see people, even non-Christians, arguing very effectively for morality in public square. I would argue they're very good at reading the book of nature. Um, I hesitate to mention the name, but he's so good that I'm just going to mention the name anyway. There's a guy named Ben Shapiro. Maybe you like Ben Shapiro. Maybe you don't like Ben Shapiro. 
you know, he doesn't have the smoothest manner with people necessarily. Um, but he is very, very good at arguing from the book of nature. Right? He's not a Christian. Uh, he's, he's Jewish. Uh, and he's very good at arguing from the book of nature. So when he goes to people and he argues, for example, on the issue of abortion, when he goes to them, he doesn't, he doesn't quote Bible verses to them. At least I don't think he does. What he does is he actually argues based on reason, based on rationality, based on fairness, essentially what I think we would call the, the laws of nature, natural law. He, he persuades people that this is something that needs to change. Our practices need to conform to reality, to the laws of nature. I think that's one example of somebody in the public square who does a great job of this. And he's not a believer. Um, uh, it's drawn from the created order. So, I mean, if you listen to his arguments, if they're sound, you're, you're actually reading, in a sense, from the book of nature. Now, many, if not most of those, yeah, I've already mentioned this, actually, on the conservative side of the Supreme Court, they're Roman Catholics because they've thought about this. It's part of the Roman Catholic tradition. And I actually think that's part of the reason why Protestants don't think much about it. We think, oh, natural law, that's a Roman Catholic thing. Um, and yet we need to claim it for ourselves because it's in our Bible. It's there in Romans chapter 1. It's there in Romans chapter 2. We need to think more about natural law if we're going to engage with people who are not believers. Um, so again, the book of nature doesn't save us from our sins. But Richard Moeller is somebody who's thought a lot about the Reformed tradition. He's thought a lot about... Uh, what it is that the Puritans taught and things like that. And Richard Muller says that there was a use for natural law to reform theologians. He says they used natural law to establish general rules of morality, restrain sin, and leave fallen humanity without an excuse for rejecting God. So, so in other words, the book of nature is true revelation. It really is God's revelation. It's not us independently hunting things down and finding it for ourselves. It is real revelation from God, and it can and it should be used to instruct our neighbors on right and wrong, and it should even guide how we live in public alongside other sinners, even if it doesn't save them from their sins, which it won't. Um, posting, eh, never mind. I was going to say posting the Ten Commandments on, in public places won't save anybody because it doesn't teach salvation. None of the Ten Commandments teach salvation, but it can leave people feeling guilty and seeing their guilt. Um, so we're imprinted with God's very image. We're his image bearers, but not all that we could know about God and all and his expectations are clear to us. And the reason is because sin clouds our minds, right? We don't think clearly. We don't feel clearly. Uh, we don't appreciate God's law the way that we should. We don't want to keep it. We have an inward bias against God's law. If we can ever find reasons to break it, we will look for those reasons and we will bring them out. Um, and so what we need, and I think God saw this. Well, I know he saw it because he sees everything. <laughs> but we need something about this natural law, this moral law, you might call it. You can call it moral law or natural law. We, we need this written somewhere that we won't be confused about it. Because natural law is something that gets debated. And if you read people who think a lot about natural law, you'll see that they don't always show, arrive at the same conclusions. There's not always unanimity on it. There is an inward impulse in us that we should keep God's law, but that doesn't mean everybody agrees on what it says. But one thing you can't argue against is the book of Scripture. Even if you're an unbeliever, you can argue against Scripture, but it's still true. This is still true revelation, whether you appreciate it or not. So the Ten Commandments, though, we find them in... What chapter of Exodus do we find the Ten Commandments in? 20. 
Exodus chapter 20, yeah. In fact, if you want to open your Bibles to that, you can. Uh, we'll look at it a little bit. Again, we're just sort of laying the groundwork for why we should do that, why, why we should listen to this in the first place. But the Ten Commandments, according to our church uh, catechism, are summarily, the, the natural law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> so if you want to know, what if, if we were to look around and try to understand and read the book of nature rightly, what would we come up with? And, and what the answer is, the Ten Commandments. Um, a broccoli, again, this guy. He says the law of the Ten Commandments is identical to the law of nature as far as the contents are concerned. So he's saying that the contents of what God expects of us are contained in Exodus chapter 20, in those verses. And by the way, that's also his argument for why the Ten Commandments are still binding, even after Israel gets destroyed. Why? Because the Ten Commandments, they come from before they actually get written. The Ten Commandments actually come from way before Moses in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are part of the created order. And even if Israel disappears, which it did, even if Israel gets wiped off the earth and doesn't exist anymore, and uh, the Ten Commandments are still true because all they are is a summary of this, which came before the scriptures were even written. So that's one of his arguments, actually, for why we should still keep them. Um, But I'll say this. Doing the hard work of moral philosophy is difficult, uh, and, and doing it well is even more difficult, and it ends up filling books, and uh, it's very cumbersome, and it's not always easy. And so having the moral law written for us is, is important because it does the heavy lifting of trying to figure out what God expects of us, and it summarizes it perfectly. The Ten Commandments are a perfect summary of the natural law. It's not like they're just trying to get at it, but God says this is actually the best interpretation of the moral law that you could ever find in these Ten Commandments right here. And so uh, the Ten Commandments endure. They endure beyond Israel as a nation. I, I mentioned this. The moral law existed before Israel, uh, and it, it exists long after Israel. Uh, the temp- temple gets destroyed in 70 AD. Guess what? The Ten Commandments are still binding. They're still binding. Um, and actually, in Ephesians 6, 1, Paul quotes from one of the Ten Commandments. And he expects that these Gentiles he's writing to are still going to be expected to keep it. He quotes from, uh, let's see, it, actually, would somebody read this? Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. I think it's worth reading just to... Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. All right. Uh, He isn't just giving a generic proverb there. He's not just giving wise advice, but he's actually quoting from the actual commandments as they're written. And he says, I expect that you will still keep this commandment. But some people say, well, the law doesn't matter after Jesus comes. Jesus rescues us from keeping the law, and yet we need to tell that to Paul, right? If that's really true, that we're not to keep any of the Ten Commandments anymore because, because Jesus has fulfilled the command, as if fulfill means to destroy, 
Uh, it doesn't mean that. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So we need to appreciate the law for what it is and understand that it's not wiping it out. It's not wiping it off the face of the earth when you fulfill a law. But rather, he's showing the fulfillment of it, the completion of it. The, 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 uh, I, don't have a better, I don't have a better synonym for it, so I'm just going to move on from that. Um, but he quotes from, the, he quotes from the ten, and he says, you should still be doing this. So every time we break the Ten Commandments, we aren't just going against the heart of God. We are living against the grain of the universe. <laughs> Ever run your hand along against the grain of wood? Uh, I one time got a psychotic amount of splinters because I put my hand down on a piece of wood and went this way and it hadn't been sanded first. <clears throat> I was really young and yes, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, and actually, I'm 37. I'd probably still act that way if I did that. <laughs> Um, but we're going against the grain of the universe. We are living completely opposite of what God has made us to be. And that has consequences for our lives. That has terrible consequences for our lives when we break the Ten Commandments. So I want to sort of turn our attention from that, though, to keeping the commandments. I want to think about our attitude toward commandments in general, because it's not always great. Right? The idea of somebody even coming to us and telling us, hey, you should live a certain way. There is something about being American and just a red-blooded, we're born out of rebellion. You know, There's something about us that just goes, why are you going to give me a rule and tell me how I should live? Oh, it, we hate it. Oh, we hate it. And so I'm, I'm going to presume that, that we all need to be persuaded that keeping the law is something that's actually important for us. The first thing I want us to know before we think about anything else is the fact that keeping God's law is a response to God's grace. It is not us taking the initiative. Instead, God takes the initiative. Because if you go to Exodus 20 and you go to that very first verse, the very first thing God does is he doesn't give them a command. He gives them what we call an indicative. He gives them an indicative And the word indicative uh, uh, it tells us something that's already true. It is not a command. It is God indicating something that we should already know. So he's saying, I am the Lord. That's how he begins. He begins with this indicative. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so God's command doesn't even begin with a command. It, it, It begins with a rescue. It begins with God taking the initiative and saying, I realize you couldn't get yourself out of Egypt. I realize there was no way for you to make it out of there on your own. So I've done it. I've done everything that's necessary to bring you to this place where you find yourself. Now, this is what I expect. And so the commands that God gives begin with God's deliverance. And as Christians, we need to hear that because it's going to affect our motivations for why we keep God's law. Any questions before I go further? One of the things I want to mention before we really wrap up for the day, though, is I want to talk about the thing that moves us to keep the law, the thing that actually drives us, the thing that we're supposed to do. One of the things that that Calvin said was, the Lutherans used to say that that this is how we got saved. I'm going to make it real quick and easy and sloppy. Um, They would say, we have faith in Jesus. 
and then we're justified by God. You know, we're right in God's eyes. And then they said there's a consequence of justification, which is sanctification. What is sanctification? Growth and grace. Growth and grace. I'm going to be more like Jesus. People are going to be able to see in my life every day that I've been saved. And one of the things that Calvin said was, no, actually, that's not the way that it works. Um, What he actually said was this. It it doesn't work this way. I know this might sound controversial. I think it is. We have faith in Christ. That brings us into union with Christ. And when we're united to Christ, we have two things simultaneously that we receive. I'm just going to put, I'm going to abbreviate it. Justification and sanctification. We get both of those things at the same time. And so our motivation to keep God's law is our union with Christ. Because we've been united to Jesus now, we want to be like him. The one that we're united to is the one we want to be part of, and we want to live that out in our lives. And of course, because we're united to Jesus, we're also justified. Um, But you don't have one of these without the other. You don't have anybody, there is nobody in the world who has been justified by grace who has not also been sanctified and made holy. Um, and you do not have people out there who are justified and holy who haven't been justified by, by faith. That speaks to sort of secular folks, right? There's a lot of people, they say, oh, I know people who keep God's law better than Christians. And I think I know what they mean by that. They mean that generally they live their lives better than believers. But you have never met a sanctified person, you know, like Gandhi, right? If somebody wanted to point at Gandhi and say, Gandhi is a sanctified guy. Let's just go with it for a second. Uh, there is no such thing as a sanctified person who's not justified. So if, if he doesn't have faith in Jesus and he's not united to Jesus, then he doesn't have any of these other things. But here's the motivator for you and me. This is the thing that drives us when we go to the Ten Commandments. We go to the Ten Commandments and we know that we're in Christ. We've put our faith in Jesus now. And so the reason why we keep the Ten Commandments is going to be different than the reason why a secular person would keep the Ten Commandments. Um... Let's just brainstorm for a minute. Why would a secular person keep the Ten Commandments? Can you, just an unsafe person, they don't believe in Jesus, why would they keep the Ten Commandments, or why would they try to at least keep the natural law, or however you want to think of it? All right, stay out of trouble. Maybe I want a better life. I know if I'm a bad person, things are going to go bad for me. What other reasons? All right, yeah. Whatever it is, it's going to be oriented toward them. Sure, yeah. What other reasons? I mean, maybe you've known some people who think of themselves as pretty good people. Why are they doing it? Conscience. All right, they want to feel good. Maybe. Maybe that's a good way of rephrasing it. Make themselves look good. All right, yeah. Um, If I'm a good person, people are going to talk good about me. Yeah, sort of, you know, living, living in that glass house, letting everybody see how I'm living. Um, that those are generally the reasons why, and they're going to be generally me-focused reasons. They're going to be reasons that are centered on me, myself, and I. What can I get out of this? Uh, what's going to happen? Uh, and they sort of think to themselves too: I may not be saved, but hey, maybe when I die, God will let me into heaven because I've done some good stuff. You know, maybe if I get to heaven and find out I was supposed to keep the Ten Commandments, this is like fire insurance, you know. 
I can point at all the nice things that I did. I can point at the um, at, at whatever, just my list of, of whales that I saved, uh, whatever you want to say. <laughs> um, here's the thing. Christians have a very different motivation. We have a very different source and place that our keeping the law comes from. And it's not centered on us. It's not centered on me and what I'm going to get and what I'm going to do. It's actually centered on the one that we're united to. So when we read the Bible and we see Jesus and we see what he's like and we love him, which is what somebody who's united to Jesus does, we love Jesus. When that happens, we look at him and there's one thing in this world that we can't stand. It's like an itch. When we're not like him, we can feel it, we can see it, we experience it. And the more that we read the Bible, the more we see how we're not like him, and the more we see that we need to be more like him. And so it's almost like an itch. I almost think of it as for a saved person, keeping the law of God is like an itch. And when we're, when we're out of step with the law, we feel it and we know it and we hate it. At least in, in our best moments. When the Spirit is with us and he's helping us, that's exactly what our experience with it is. And there's nothing we would rather have than to be like him. So it's a very different motivation, right? For the secular person, it's all me-focused. And for the Christian, it's meant to be God-focused. It's meant to be centered on Christ. And so um, the Ten Commandments also have this positive side to them. And, and, you know, we're just sort of running out of time, so I have to go quickly here. Um, but the Ten Commandments are not just about keeping you from your best life now. They, the Ten Commandments are not there to spoil things for you or take away things that you enjoy or rob you of stuff that you like. The Ten Commandments are actually there um, to do the opposite. They're, they're there to cause us to flourish and to do well. And not just us, but our neighbor and all those people around us. When you look at the Ten Commandments, I mentioned this, I think, on Sunday Uh, There's this positive side to all the commandments. It's not just about what God keeps us from, but it's what God calls us to. And we're going to see this next week because the first commandment says, Have no other gods before me. The first commandment says, Have no other gods before me. And if you read that, just word for word, it is a negative command. Don't have other gods. And yet there's this whole positive angle to it, which is what? Have me as your God. And so for our first lesson next week, we're going to look at what does it mean to have God as our God, this thing that he expects of us. And then the next week after, Robert's going to talk about what does it mean to not have other gods, uh, assuming our schedules keep up the way that it's supposed to be. Um, And so we need to have a different attitude when we think about the law. We need to think of the law as being a source of freedom to us. Because there is no more chaos, there is no greater disorder in the universe than existing and being free and having no idea what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to live for or why you were made. Um, There are wealthy people committing suicide in giant mansions because they do not know what their life is supposed to be focused towards and they have absolutely freedom and they have absolutely no idea what to do with it. And as Christians, one of the things that we know is we won't be condemned when we slip up. A justified person is still going to sin. A sanctified person is still going to sin. And yet we know that when we mess up, when we screw up, when we commit sins, when we displease God, we know that it's not going to result in us being cast out. And what that means is when we look at those Ten Commandments, we are not looking at a list of things that are going to destroy us as believers 
We're looking at our Father's expectations for us. What does it look like to grow up? What does it look like to be what we were made to be? And so, you know, as people today, um, uh, it is hard for us to talk about laws. It is tough for us to talk about commandments because people do want to be free. And they think of freedom as absolute freedom, having no expectations on us at all, but that's a prison. And so, uh, you know, going back to natural law, or just the moral law, whatever you want to call it, going back to the moral law, when we keep the commandments, it's like a liberating constraint. Um, It's like we're finally doing what we were made for. Um, Imagine a yacht. Donald isn't in here. I was going to mention boats. I'll still mention it. Uh, Imagine somebody buying a yacht and it just sits in their yard and they never put it out to sea. That would drive you crazy if you're the neighbor. You're like, let me drive your yacht. Um, you know, imagine a car that you live in it, but you never drive it. Or imagine a hamburger that you have as a doorstop. You know, you have all of these things that are made for something else, and you're not using it for the thing that it was made for. The Ten Commandments are like that. They, the Ten Commandments, it's like, it's like God's coming to us and saying, hey, I gave you my image. This is what you use it for. All right, so... Uh, you know, eat, you know, put that car on the road, take that yacht out to sea, eat that ham. Well, don't eat the hamburger if you try to use it as a doorstop, but, uh, but it's for more than propping open that door. Right. And that's what God's telling us. And so in this class, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be learning. What were we made to do? What were we made to live like? What is the thing that's actually going to make us the most free? That's what every single week of this class is going to be. And so, you know, our, our confession says, when it asks the question, what does the Bible teach? And it says, the Bible principally teaches two things. What we are to believe concerning God and what God requires of us. And we've already talked about what we're to believe concerning God. For the last m- several months now, we have really, really hit that issue very, very well, I think. Um, and now it's time for us to turn our attention to the second part. What does the Bible teach? It tells us what God requires of us. And so we're going to spend the remainder of the spring through the summer answering those questions, looking at the Ten Commandments. Our plan is each week we're going to do one lesson on the positive side of the command and then one lesson on the negative side of the command. And uh, as long as that works out, you know, that'll, that will keep us occupied for some time. So before we dismiss this morning, are there any questions or comments or anything like that? He's an expert in that, I think. Huh? He's an expert in that, I think. Yeah. Well, the other, and the flip side of that is going to be when uh, Clarence Thomas was being examined. One of them, and I forget which, and I think it's more, but they asked him, do you believe in natural law? And he said, well, of course. Well, the leftists on the, on the committee just went crazy because they said, he's going to throw out the Constitution and just fly out a seat of his pants and do what he thinks is right. And so he got scope. And then along comes Thomas later, and they ask him, do you believe in natural law? And he said, well, yeah, but the, the Constitution has got the trumpet. It doesn't matter what I believe. And they went crazy about that because they said, it doesn't matter what he believes. <laughs> He's got to do the wrong thing regardless. Yeah, you can't win. And it, it was so revealing. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Now, do you remember, I don't know the answer to this. Is Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas is Roman Catholic, isn't he? I don't know. Did you know about Robert Bork? 
I was so fascinated when I I was so fascinated when I learned that all the the Christians on the Supreme Court were were I, I think Scalia was Scalia was a Roman Catholic. All right. Well, anything else about Ten Commandments, natural law, all that stuff? You can always ask me questions later. The other lessons won't be like this. This was the heady one. This is the one where I get to be a philosopher for a little while. Just thank you for indulging me. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to make things a little simpler next week when we start looking at each of the commandments. And we're going to stick to the text and, yeah, not talk so much about that other stuff. Well, let's pray. Father, would you uh, use this study to make us people who, who do your law? Would you use this study to shape us into people who love you and love your word? Would you help us to please you? Would you help us to live as redeemed people who have been born again? Help us to be people who are not just convicted, who don't just feel guilty because of your scriptures and your commandments, but help us to desire to positively please you and be shaped by the, in, in the inward person to reflect your own holiness in our daily lives. Would you help us, O oh God? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right.